I'm Colleen O'Hanlon and welcome to this bonus episode of Joe vs Cancer. During recording, we were very lucky to get time with two people who have been important figures in Joe's life since her diagnosis. The first is Dr Chris Jackson, Joe's oncologist at Mercy Cancer Care in Dunedin and a former medical director of the Cancer Society. The second is Marie Wales, supportive care manager for the Cancer Society's Otago and Southland region. She and Joe have grown quite close. When we spoke to them, it was our final day in the studio and Joe was pretty tired, so I did most of the talking. We'll start with Chris, who talked about Joe's case, offered some general tips about treatment and shared his views on how to improve Aotearoa New Zealand's cancer outcomes. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks so much for joining us. We are really aware that it's not normal business for an oncologist to come onto a podcast and talk about a particular patient's care, but Joe and you seem to have a really special relationship it was actually her idea, and she's really comfortable for us to have a chat with you. So thanks for coming along. No, real pleasure. Um, you know, Jo's a really special person, obviously, and I think she's a self-proclaimed oversharer. Yep. And certainly we, we're here to overshare about <laughs> all of the nitty-gritty details of Jo's <laughs> cancer. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's one of the, you know, people who know Jo think that's probably one of her best traits. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be kind of here and kind of hearing all the nitty-gritty. Jo and I have sat and had some quite, you know, difficult conversations, but one of the things that's really shone through to me as she's talked about her cancer fight is the relationship she has with you, her oncologist. And is that like a, a normal thing? You know, does a natural, you know, close relationship develop between an oncologist and patient? First of all, I um, don't take for granted for one second the extraordinary uh, privilege that it is in the amount of trust that people place in you to, uh, you know, come along at probably the most vulnerable time of their lives and say, help and when people trust you that much, uh, I think you have to do everything you can to respect that trust. You know, I've thought a lot about what it would be like if I was a patient um, and what I would want from my doctor, but I think what I'm aware of is that actually people want different things. And so when Joe comes along, she shares a lot of herself, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, and that means we can talk about her health to a certain degree, um, but I also think uh, Joe. Um, you might think I'm wrong on this, Joe, but I think Joe wants to be seen as a person in her context with her family and uh, her relationships wants all of that to be considered as part of looking after her. And Joe is not a cancer. Uh, Joe is a person who happens to have cancer. And looking after her well uh, means focusing on all aspects of her life and, and certainly not just the cancer. Yeah, I think we've touched on that too, that idea that Joe feels strongly that cancer doesn't define her. It's just, you know, something that she's facing in her daily life at the moment. So it's really interesting to hear you have the same, I guess, understanding. So when a patient is diagnosed with cancer, how does a person become matched with an oncologist? Is it is it a luck-of-the-door situation? Yeah, so I think in the public sector, it is very much next cab off the rank. In the private sector, people have got a wee bit more choice who they go on to see. But to be fair, it's a bit of a punch, really. Joe, I think, was referred to me by her surgeon, uh, if I recall correctly, and that was just because her surgeon said, I should go see Chris. And Joe went, sure. Um, and again, that, that I think speaks to the trust that people have as well as when they go along and they... Um, you know, trust those referral pathways and, and go that way. <clears throat> uh, one of the things about the private sector is the waiting time shorter than it is in the public mm. sector, which I think is a problem. When you have a new diagnosis like cancer, you want to understand what it means. You want to understand um, what the treatment options are. You want to understand what it means in terms of, you know, let's be honest, am I going to live? How long am I going to live for? Can you cure me? That sort of thing. Mm. Um, and people want to know that information, and that means you need to see the people who, who have most access to that best information, which often is 
uh, an oncologist when you've got cancer which is spread. Mm, and, uh, and so I think even you know even one or two weeks wait can be torturous. Uh, so you just have to see people as soon as possible. Yeah, right. And of course, people who receive a cancer diagnosis, you know, there's the, the immediate fear of the unknown, right? And, no, and time must feel more precious than ever. Everyone's got access to Dr. Google, right? Yep. Um, and who can resist looking up that medical textbook in your pocket? No one can. You know, of course you start Googling. And as soon as you start Googling, it's pretty overwhelming. Mm. Um, the thing about the Institute of Course is it's completely unfiltered. And you can start reading a variety of things that may or may not apply to you. Uh, and what I found is that many people start reading and then, you know, have the bejesus get out of them uh, and then promptly stop because actually it can be pretty overwhelming what you can come across. There's also a lot of stuff on the internet where the survivors tell the story. So it's biased towards, I guess, people who've had extremely good outcomes in some ways, you know, with extremely intensive treatments. And, and that's part of what's out there too. Um, and I think also there's a lot of people online who are trying to sell you stuff. Um, so they're trying to sell you supplements or they're trying to sell you uh, novel treatments, which they make profit out of or whatever, which try to sell intensive treatments, which aren't necessarily the right thing. So I think that the internet is a mixed blessing. Great to have the information available, but making sure that the patients match with the right information is, is part of the uh, part of the mix, really. So uh, what would your advice be to people who you know are tempted to kind of Google their condition? As you say, it's a natural thing to do, but is it more yeah. hurtful than helpful? No, look, I think um, everyone does it. There's no way around that. I think when people come and talk to me as well, what I do is actually share and say, well, look, yeah, actually, if you look on Dr. Google is what you'll find, um, and then try to provide the context around that. And there are some really good websites which are really well-reviewed, such as cancer.gov, which is a US website. There's um, an English website, uh, macmillan.org.uk, which is fantastic. Um, there's the Cancer Research UK website, which is absolutely fantastic as well. And there's a, one in Australia called EVIQ, which is a weird acronym, which I don't even understand what it stands for, but EVIQ is another really good one too. And they are very carefully reviewed. The Cancer Society, of course, has got a very wide range of patient-focused materials as well, which help understand the whole context. Uh, but none of those are a substitute for meeting with an expert in the area who can actually tailor all that information to you. I think one of the other things too is when you've been reading and actually when you get diagnosed is that anyone who you've ever met in your life comes up to you and goes, oh, look, you know, Uncle Jeff was diagnosed with cancer and uh, he took apricot kernels, so you should too. Here's a <laughs> bottle of them. It's funny you should um, mention apricot kernels because, you know, that came up the other day as um, something Joe considered doing but hasn't done. Um, <laughs> They're sitting in my pantry still. She collected them from her Cyanide community. kernels. Yes, that's right. So is that, uh, you know... Um, does that fall firmly on your list of things to not try? There's always something fashionable. I mean, there has been, ever since I started oncology, there's always been something new, which people have said this is the new next big thing. You know, we've had the vitamin C trend, we've had the apricot kernels, you've had the quantum booster, mm. you know, all those different things along the way. And I think that people have an extraordinary need for hope, mm -hmm. um, that they want something to be new and available that might help them. Uh, second of all, uh, other people have an extraordinary need to offer help because actually when you are around somebody who's affected by cancer, who you care about, that is incredibly and deeply distressing. But in actual fact, one of the most powerful things you can do when you are around somebody who's affected by cancer, who you care about, is just to be there for them and to be who they need you to be, not who you want to be. And, uh, and that can change, uh, but you have to respond to that. And so being there... Uh, and being real and feeling the pain with them uh, is actually probably what most people want. And I think most people don't really want um, another, you know, pamphlet on, 
um, you know, greenlit muscle extract or something. They actually want uh, care, concern and to be heard. Right. It's so interesting. I really hope my mum's listening to this and she can keep her thoughts around apple cider vinegar to herself. Because <laughs> as far as she's concerned, it's a cure-all for almost everything. Not cancer. In my book, look, there's, there's two types of things. There's evidence-based therapies and there's non-evidence-based therapies, right? And it's not alternative and it's not conventional because actually we know that there's data to support the use of tree nuts, so Brazil nuts um, and macadamias and almonds, they actually actually slow cancer growth. And then there's other data which shows that actually some vitamins are harmful, like vitamin A and vitamin E in lung cancers, for example, are actually harmful and speed cancer growth up. So it's all just about evidence. It's not about mm. that doctors have got some aversion to vitamins. We don't. In fact, Joe's on a modified vitamin B vitamin uh, as part of a chemotherapy regime. Um, oh, I, need that, pres- I need that prescription it. filled too, by the way. <laughs> Okay, you need that. All right. Yeah, yeah. And vitamin D tablets too. You're on those, Joe. So, you know, we're not against vitamins. We're just against things which don't have any proof where people are trying to, I think, basically exploit you or painted false hope. Right. So, Chris, that segues quite nicely into getting some really practical, helpful advice from a doctor around everyday things that cancer sufferers can do to help themselves. So, you know, whether that's. Mm. So, I wondered if you could give some kind of. Acknowledging that you just referenced different types of cancer have different kind of requirements mm. and things work, but what have you noticed that is a common theme in people who successfully beat cancer? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is that cancer is not anyone's fault, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that a lot of people start by saying, What have I done? and um, What could have I done differently to avoid this situation? And why me? And I think those feelings are really real at the start of the journey and they're pretty overwhelming. Uh, and the first thing is to be gentle to yourself, actually. It's not your fault. You didn't deserve it. It's a DNA copying error because your DNA copies all the time and occasionally makes mistakes and that's why you've got it. And it's not your fault. That's the first thing. Be easy on yourself. And second of all, acknowledge where you are and try to find uh, some kind of peace with that. It's overwhelming, but actually it is where you are. And then work out what your values are and what's important to you and then look at the choices you've got and make the choices in line with the values that you have. And so making good decisions and keeping with your values are critical. And so for some people who actually value low side effects but actually aren't that concerned about longevity, then avoiding treatment might be a good option. And others who actually want to squeeze out every possible day and are willing to put up with all sorts of side effects and actually having intensive treatment might be right. But making decisions and keeping with your values are important. And then the other stuff comes along, but there's a big myth that we've got control over our outcomes and and our ability to control our destiny in cancer is actually pretty limited. Actually, cancer usually has the final say as to what happens, uh, and most of that is due to the biology. The stuff that does make a difference is stuff that actually one's mums used to say, and mum was actually right, Um, not the apple cider vinegar, but the, the... Um, Exercise, actually there's strong evidence that exercising three hours plus per week reduces the chance of cancer coming back if you've had an operation to cure it. Um, There's strong evidence that people who uh, exercise more have slightly better tumour control than people who don't exercise at all. There's increasing evidence around uh, diet in terms of preventing cancer from coming back in terms of green leafy vegetables and um, you know, brown grains and avoiding refined carbohydrates and that type of thing for people who've had cancer operations. So dietary measures, and it's really boring. It's fresh fruit and vegetables mm. and whole grains, you know, but it's true. And it's repeated over study, over study, over cancer type, over cancer type, that these things actually help in the long run. And diet and exercise, they aren't sexy. They're not a pill. They're not a supplement. They're actually lifestyle changes that you can make. 
but there's a threshold and so certainly in gut cancers it's about three hours exercise per week and if you exercise 15 hours or three hours it doesn't make a difference but if you exercise three hours versus no hours it makes a big difference so if anyone out there is listening who's got cancer in the past and thinks they're going to start exercising 15 20 hours a week well it won't help any more than three hours a week will so get to that level then you don't need to do more does it matter what kind of um, exercise? I guess what I mean is, you know, high intensity or low intensity just yeah. as effective? Yeah, so certainly high intensity exercise and strength-based stuff seems to be more effective at preventing cancer recurrence than gentler stuff. When I talk to people about exercise, they often say, well, look, yeah, yeah, I exercise a lot. I, I walk all the time. Well, to get the amount of metabolic demand from walking that's required to get the cancer benefits, it's about eight hours a week, and most people don't walk eight hours a week. So it is much more of that high-intensity stuff to around about a three-hour level. So my general rule of thumb is three hours hot footy exercise is good, and the evidence for strength-based, resistance-based exercise is actually very strong too. That feels super practical to get that kind of solid advice from a doctor who sees cancer on the daily. is really awesome. So the whole ra- rationale for Joe in doing this podcast is to share her story with a view to try and, you know, get better outcomes for other people and ideally, you know, for people to cancer, catch cancer super early, to get access to treatment, that kind of thing. Um, if you were to be able to look at the cancer care landscape across the country, you know, what would be the top of your list of things that you would really like to affect some positive change in? Yeah, so I, I think we should think about uh, cancer and what we can do about cancer in several different ways. I mean, the, the first thing in terms of how do we reduce the number of people with cancer over the course of the next 20 years? So how do we stop people getting cancer in the first place? And the single most important thing we can do to help reduce the burden of cancer in general is to stop smoking. That's it. If you stopped all smoking, you would cut 20% of all cancers, 20%. New Zealand at the moment is going through the steps of having actually some of the world's most radical smoke-free legislation go through at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a sinking lid on age restrictions for tobacco, so start off at 18, then next year will be 19, then next year will be 20, then next year will be 21. No other country's doing that, and that's an incredible move. You can even move to a smoke-free generation by doing that. What about vaping? Um, look, vaping's better than smoking, but actually not vaping's better than vaping. So smoke-free most important thing you can do. The other thing which, you know, New Zealand's most socially acceptable carcinogen is alcohol. Mm. And as someone who loves Central Otago Pinot Noir, I find that very upsetting at a personal level. Um, <laughs> that actually, unfortunately, alcohol is a carcinogen and there is no minimum safe level. And that actually, if everyone in New Zealand had one less drink a week, you'd measurably lower the amount of uh, cancers that happen in the next 10 years. If you want to add two less drinks a week, you'd go down further. If you want to add five less drinks, it'd go down a little bit further. So, you know, so you do reduce the numbers of people affected by cancer by a few hundred, you know, if you reduce the amount of alcohol that we drink. So I think it's important for us, everyone knows you've got a pretty unhealthy drinking uh, culture. We need to look at that. Third thing is sun exposure. New Zealand's got the highest rate of melanoma in the world and, um, you know, having sun smart schools and sunshade areas, that type of thing, uh, is what we need to do. So they're the probably the three most important immediate things that we could do to change things for a generation. And to, but they they only help prevent cancers. They don't help people once they get cancer. Once people have got cancer, the important things are to pick it up early. So that's having evidence-based screening programs. So bowel cancer, we need to roll out the bowel cancer screening program to 50-year-olds next. 
and that will help an extra uh, several hundred people per year if cancer picked up an early point and increase the chance of getting cured. We need to make sure that people who are eligible for breast screening get access to it, and we need to make sure that we roll out the HPV vaccination to make sure a, a whole generation of women never have to face the uh, trauma of cancer and hopefully never even need smears if we can get rid of HPV. So early diagnosis, good screening, uh, and then good rapid access to diagnostic pathways is the next thing. So if you've got bowel symptoms, making sure we've got enough docs and nurses to do the colonoscopies. If you've got you know, dodgy lung symptoms, making sure we've got the resources to do the right CT scans to diagnose lung cancer at an early point. And that requires health workforce, uh, which means more docs and nurses. Yeah. And, and you're, you're a globally sought-after resource, right? So it's, it's not just a case of training more doctors. It's keeping them here. Yeah, that's a, a big part of it. I think that um, when you look at population demographics, population's ageing and there's getting more of us, so we can easily see that there's going to be uh, an extra 10,000 or so people affected by cancer over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, uh, and that's an extra 50% of current cancer diagnoses, and that means that we're going to need more people to look after them, and you, business as usual isn't going to get us there. So one of the really important bits of work that the Cancer Agency has been doing is around what does a modern or a future-proof cancer workforce look like? And that means more use of nurse practitioners, better use of primary care, better access to uh, novel diagnostic techniques, so more molecular-based diagnostics and more sensitive diagnostic testing, evidence-based screening programs and making sure there's the capacity in the sector to actually diagnose people at an early stage. Because if you've got a symptom that you think might be cancer and you can't get it looked at, that's very distressing. And also, if you've been you know, asking for help to have a symptom looked at and you get mucked around for ages on a diagnostic pathway and you get diagnosed with cancer, you feel really betrayed uh, by a system mm. that you trusted to look after you. And that really is extremely damaging for people. Yeah, Chris, that touches on, again, something else we've discussed, which is, you know, Joe has talked about um, having to advocate for her own health. And, and it was yeah. a, a kind of a conversation in the room where we, we could all agree that, that can be quite a hard thing to do because, you know, yeah. um, you're in a room with an expert in their space, yeah. um, but, you know, you're the person with a symptom in the body and that gut feeling in yeah. some cases. But yeah. is that a, um, I mean, is that a real problem? You know, because it certainly feels like sometimes you've got to, you know, it's that old thing about the squeaky wheel, right? You've got to kind of, yeah. you know, is that a problem for some patients who just are not, you know, equipped to do that? It's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard. You know, look, all of my patients have already been diagnosed with cancer, so I don't have to sit in the general practice office and, um, you know, work through uh, a lot of very complicated symptoms, most of which aren't cancer. So the GPs have got an extraordinarily hard job, extraordinarily hard. Mm. And, um, and you know, when it comes to bowels, for example, bowel symptoms are really common, bowel cancer's not. And, you know, for every 100 patients who come with bowel problems, only a couple are actually going to have cancer. And that's really hard to sift through uh, and identify which people's bowel symptoms are, you know, actually cancer and which aren't. That's sometimes really, really difficult. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible. Uh, it just means it's difficult. So from a researcher's point of view, I want to have better tests that make it much, much, much easier for me to work out which of the patients who have symptoms actually have the serious illnesses that we need to fix and which ones have, you know, more benign conditions that can be managed through dietary measures, exercise or fibre intake or whatever. So th that's the challenge. And doing colonoscopies on every single patient who's got bowel symptoms mm. is just impractical. There's a lot of work being done on, you know, let's call them magic blood tests. 
Um, but basically, um, blood tests which are trying to pick up tiny fragments of cancer in the blood or tiny fragments of cancer DNA in the blood or what's called um, methylation markers, which are looking for precancerous changes uh, in the blood, which might actually help you refine that. So that's important. There's better and better poo tests to try and see if you can get cancer DNA in poo. So there's, there, there's advances, um, but I tell you, it's damn frustrating that it takes so long mm. to get a good test to market in order to help people in a short time. Chris, you mentioned the National Cancer Agency. Uh, it's not an organisation I'm familiar with, but can you tell us a bit about it? One of the things about New Zealand is our cancer outcomes aren't as good as Australia or Canada, and our progress against cancer over the last 15 to 20 years has been worse than uh, most other comparable countries, which is absolutely nothing criminal. Uh, and a lot of that's been because we haven't really had a national focus on cancer control, so the sorts of policies and investments that we need. Uh, and that's been largely through an action for several successive governments who've looked to just, you know, try to minimise spending and, um, and manage status, status quo business as usual. And that's led to us getting behind. And so we worked very hard for a number of years trying to make the case for a stronger national investment, national focus on cancer spearheaded by a cancer agency. And three years ago, um, just this September, the cancer agency was announced. And that's been absolutely wonderful. Many people listening may have actually signed the Levine and petition for a national cancer agency or supported uh, that along the way. And that's now been going for a couple of years, which is fantastic. You know, we can make a difference against cancer by the government policies that we use. We can make a difference by the research that we do. We can make a difference by the screening programs we have. And we can, can make a difference by the investment in drugs that we make. And all of those are due to government policies. And if we have a strong advocate in the sector like a cancer agency who informs the government about what they can do, um, then we're in a much better position to actually uh, have those changes occur. Thanks, Chris. I think a lot of our listeners would be horrified to hear that there's such a gap between treatment outcomes across the ditch. So it's really um, great to hear that we've taken that positive step. Yeah, and, and what we do need now is uh, the government to give us a little bit more money, um, please, um, in order that we can um, invest in, in the sorts of programmes that we need because a lot of the things that we need to do are pretty obvious and it's just a matter of actually getting them done. Um, that's the hard bit, and that takes a bit of courage and some investment. And, you know, I'd like to say if we focused on cancer like we focused on COVID, we could make a pretty big difference. So I'm going to ask you one last question, which does, yep. you know, re reference the pandemic, but has that focus on COVID-19 in recent years had any detrimental impact on the national you know, fight against cancer? Oh, absolutely. But a pandemic has impacted on health mm. services around the world. Um, the, the big question for me is, has it impacted on New Zealand more than other countries? So has it impacted on New Zealand 100% impossible for a global pandemic not to uh, of this nature? You know, it's slammed um, our health system uh, and it's disrupted uh, diagnostic screening and therapies. Absolutely. But how did New Zealand do compared to other countries? Actually, we did a whole lot better than other countries did in terms of both COVID and in terms of managing our cancer services through that. UK is a complete mess and they're going to take a very long time to get their systems back up and running again um, using their strategies. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely it's affected us, absolutely, but it's affected us less than other countries. But what, what it's really shown me is that with national focus and national coordination, how much you can achieve. I knew that in my heart anyway, uh, and this has just proven it, and I think that you know I'd like to see us focus on cancer as the next big challenge. Thanks so much, Chris. That's awesome. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I didn't talk much for a change. I just I let Colleen take it, so that's quite I good. I saw you closing your eyes a bit, so I thought maybe you're either... I was listening. Yeah, I, was I know, but resting also, so, you know, <laughs> rolled with it. 
That was Chris Jackson. As we noted, doctors don't normally talk about their patients in public, but that was a conversation that happened at Joe's request. Next up, Marie Wales from the Cancer Society. We talked about the right and wrong ways to talk to patients and the barriers rural residents face when accessing treatment, and of course, the power of hope. But first, I asked what she wanted people to know about the lives of those living with cancer. When I started working for the Cancer Society, I actually had no idea either, to be honest. And I found that a lot of people didn't realise they didn't need to do it alone. A lot of people get a cancer diagnosis, they're sitting in a chair and the whole world just falls apart. Mm. And it's like them being in a pinball machine. Suddenly they're the ball and then they get bounced all over the place from appointment to treatment to radiotherapy to chemotherapy. But all of these people have lives, their mums, their dads, their grandparents, their daughters, and they go home, but they've got this cancer diagnosis But life carries on, and we want people to know that we're about living and living well and that you don't need to do it alone and that it's okay to say, I'm stuck. I don't know where I'm at. I'm in this this void. Um, A lot of people struggle because they don't want to cause fear for their loved ones. So they internalise a lot Mm -hmm. of things. And we want to be that safe haven where they can say, I'm scared. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And sometimes we just clear the fog, if you like. Mm. I love the people I get to know. You know, you get to see who they are. And that's the difference, I think, that we offer as the Cancer Society is that it's not about the cancer. It's about the person. It's about their whanau. It's about their spirituality. It's about what's important to them. And we want to guide them and just say, hey, this is available to you. Or they say, oh, no, that's not me. Or hey, do you want to try this? Or some people just want a bit of information and then they'll come back and say, hey, I'm a bit stuck. So it's about saying there's someone that can walk alongside you. There's someone that's there at the end of the phone. If you're just having a bad day or something's just wrong and just want to vent. I have done lots of jobs in my life, but this is the hardest, but the one that really fills my bucket. You know, I meet people like Jo Mm. and I meet Jo's kids and her dog and her partner and her mum and and I just love the people I meet because you see the life and you, you talk and you laugh and the cancer is such a small part of it. But the cancer gets in the way. Mm. That's the problem. I think it's part of the human condition to struggle to ask for help. Um, how does a cancer patient become connected with the Cancer Society? And is there any particular type of help that people find the hardest to accept? Yeah, well, that's a good question because um, it's not an easy path mm. because people aren't naturally referred to us, which I find extremely frustrating, I'll be honest. Um, there's all these privacy laws we get told. So when people go into the healthcare system, we're reliant on individuals that know about us and then they'll connect our services. Like Chris Jackson told Joe about us, so Joe knew which, yep. how to make that connection. But a lot of people don't know. They go to the hospital, they get seen by the doctor mm. and then they go home. We are working hard to try and make changes in that space to try and have a more seamless referral pathway so people can make an informed decision. Hey, look, not everybody needs us and not everybody wants someone else coming into their life. But we want to say, can we at least make sure that people have that right of choice? Mm. Um, A lot of people find it hard to accept one coming into their home who's a stranger because they don't know you. Mm. And you're going to be talking about some of the most intimate emotions that you have you know you're facing your own mortality now 
a lot of people survive cancer. We've got 75% of people living more than five years. We're, we've got um, cancer treatments that are, you know, predominant life. Sometimes cancer is becoming more of a chronic condition. But we find, like you say, a lot of people are very stoic. Um, sometimes it may be a farmer and, you know, he's got cancer and he just says, look, if you can look after my wife, you're looking after me because the wife is the one who's struggling. So a lot of the times it's not just the person with cancer, it's the partner that we support because they're the ones who are walking alongside and they're lost and they don't know what to do, they don't know how to help. So we actually become a support to them and we find that when the person finishes cancer treatment sometimes it reverses. The support person says, oh, thank God that's over, we've got through that. And then the cancer patient says, holy moly, what now? I don't know what to do. I've been going for treatment and now I don't know what to do and who's watching me and I've got this pain, is it cancer? And so there's that fear of recurrence. So we have people who are not surviving cancer well after cancer treatment. When you were talking before about farmers, my mind immediately went to rural communities because, you know, in previous episodes we have talked with Jo around the the logistical and practical kind of elements of her treatment. And Joe's fortunate to have a really supportive family and community that, you know, help her with those practical details. But I'm absolutely sure that is not everybody's situation. What help exists for people in those sense? So there is a, a national travel assistance subsidy, but you have to meet a criteria. And the criteria is you have to do six appointments within six months. And you can claim after you've met that criteria and it's, there's a reimbursement fee. But you've got to do those six appointments within six months. Mm. Some people do five appointments in six months. They do two and a half thousand Ks and they still don't get assistance. And then also to get reimbursed, you have to front up first, you know, and I'm sure that that is a barrier for a lot of families. Oh, huge barrier. And you imagine if you're not feeling well Mm. and you've had chemotherapy treatments and you're asked to fail all this administration forms and then you've got to get verification. So you've actually got to go to the hospital and get them to stamp that you attended the appointment and then you've got to attach it to the form and then you've got to write down who and, you know, where you've been. And then they have to verify it and then they challenge it. So sometimes it's taking up to three months for people to get reimbursement. It's taking up to six to ten weeks for them to actually get registered. So if you've got no money and you're struggling mm. and you've got kids that need school uniforms and you're trying to pay the power bill and then suddenly you're expected to drive to the treatment centre... People are saying, well, I can't afford to go mm. or I I have to compromise something in meeting activities of daily living. It's a huge, huge problem. Are you seeing that become more of a problem as we navigate our way through a cost of living crisis? Yeah, we have lately. Um, we had a gentleman who lived in a caravan and he didn't meet the criteria and he was expected to be in Dunedin having like radiotherapy treatment. He was 76 years old living in a caravan and he just said, I can't afford to go. So we worked with our DHB partners because it's, it's, you know, we're all doing the best we can and it's there's no fault or no blame attributed to the people that we work with. So we kicked in and we actually helped get him the funds that he needed and he stayed at Daffodil House, which is fantastic. But we only know about some people. There's a lot of people we don't know about. The Cancer Society currently is probably only reaching about 30% of people with cancer. So what is, what's happening with all the other 70%? Mm. We've got poor outcomes for Māori and Pacific people in New Zealand with cancer. They've got poor outcomes. We need to do better. There's a lot of people who are scared and they have fear and 
we're not making it easy for them. So the Cancer Society is working really hard on a new model of care so we can make our services accessible to anyone who wants that help. Sorry, for my understanding, Marie, can you tell me what Daffodil House is? So Daffodil House um, is our accommodation facility. Now, we have those based in, across all of New Zealand. We've got Auckland, Waikato, in uh, Wellington, Christchurch and um, Dunedin. And we provide accommodation for people receiving treatment away from home. Again, I mean, we're sort of invisible, but we do such amazing job. I'm really proud of the team that I work with across the whole country. Uh, we have our 0800 nurses. You know, you can ring up any cancer, any question. They are available to anybody at any time. So we've got a lot of services that we provide. We have um, volunteer drivers who pick up people and take them to treatment and bring them back home again. We've got um, our staff go out and visit people in the homes. So there's a lot of things that we do do, but no one knows about it. Mm. I mean, like, I think many, many New Zealanders will be aware of the Cancer Society, but I probably wasn't aware of those, like, tendrils of care that you kind of deliver in the society. Marie, one thing we've really tried to capture in this podcast is, you know, how people who have someone in their life um, who's fighting cancer, how they can support that person in a way that is meaningful and for everyone, I suppose, but particularly the cancer sufferer. But I know it depends on individuals, but, you know, what are some of the ways in which you see people offering practical support? Well, first I'd say to people, don't avoid your friends. I've had friendships break up because the person doesn't know what to say. So firstly, I'd say, just say, I don't know what to say, but I'm your friend, I'm here, I'm here to support you or do anything, you know, but don't don't avoid them. That's mm. That hurts a lot of people. They see people crossing the street. So it's just owning it and saying, I don't know what to say, but you're my friend, I care about you. The second thing is I think it's hard to ask for help. Like, you know, you don't yeah. want to say, oh, I'm struggling. But for the likes of Joe, who's got, you know, treatments going on and two kids, sometimes it's just nice to do, just to say, hey, I've got some free time. What can I do? Mm. Can I run the vacuum clean around? Can I clean your windows? Can I drop off some meals? Be, I think, more proactive in offering because people say, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. It is really hard to say I'm not coping and to ask for those things. Yeah. And in some ways, I think particularly so for single parents. Because and I am one as well, you know, Joe and I have talked about that, but there is that kind of mentality of coping and doing things on your own. So it is really difficult to accept help. But um, you know, Joe, I'm always happy to come and do the vacuuming, but don't ask me to do the windows because I don't <laughs> even do my own. So, you know. <laughs> and and what about the conversely, what are some of the things that, you know, maybe well meaning people people might be well meaning, but actually the impact can be the opposite for that person with cancer? Telling them about somebody else's story. I don't know if Joe told you about that moment at the yeah. cemetery. Yeah, you've talked about that. Those sort of things. We don't need to hear about how your auntie Beatrice had cancer and she had this and she had that. Or, you know, people don't need to know that. They don't need to know about other people's experiences. That's not helpful. Or this alternative treatment or this treatment that's over in Mexico. Or I heard about this. You know, it's confusing enough cancer without people coming along and having well-meaning, but actually it's not helpful. So Mm. it's just like, remember you've got a person standing in front of you and be very conscious of what you say because sometimes what you can say can be really detrimental to someone's well-being. On a similar note, I was talking about this podcast with another colleague of ours who um, also, you know, fought cancer and she's at the other side of that battle, but she did say, you know, it never leaves leaves me. 
know, every, every pain I have is uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that's a cancer and it's back. You know, in your experience, do you see uh, cancer survivors who go on and live well and don't have that kind of almost post-traumatic response to it, but actually who can, you know, clear the decks and... Yeah, and it's, it's again, it's about helping people. We always say cancer's in the front seat of the car. It's talking to you. Oh, is that cancer? Is that cancer? Mm. So we say we want to help you try and get cancer in the back seat and then in the boot. Because cancer will always be a part of your life, but we want it in the boot. Yes. We don't want it niggling all the time and talking to you. And people do survive well, but sometimes people just need a little help. They need strategies as to how to calm that voice. They need to replace treatments with what they can do. And some people don't know how to eat well. Some people don't know that going for a walk is okay. You don't have to be going to the gym and running um, and you know doing a marathon to, to live well. It's about getting people to another space in their life where they've got a calmness and they actually realise cancer happened, it was a trauma, but I can actually get in the back seat on the boot of the car. But yeah, there is a fear of recurrence out there and that's what I'm saying. We've got a once you finish cancer treatment, that's it. Mm. You know, it's like they discharge you into this abyss. And we've had people who have actually um, struggled, really struggled, and had suicidal ideation because they said, I can't live with this fear every day. Mm. That's a real, and people say they've got fear, they've got guilt, you know, survivor's guilt, because they say, why am I feeling like this? Other people have died and I'm alive, but I don't feel like I'm living. They feel stuck. So, again, it's cancer's not just about treatment. It's about saying, hey, you're living with cancer, but we also need to look about living beyond cancer. Marie, we've spoken with Chris Jackson, and he's talked, you know, really frankly about having difficult conversations with patients, et cetera. And Joe has talked about those oncology appointments and how they can be really rough listening, you know, when you're hearing the confronting facts about your health. And we all know Joe to be somebody who's filled with hope, but she has said that at times it's really difficult to maintain that mindset and it's a constant, you know, constant struggle for her to kind of build that support and have that sense of hope for herself and her future. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I always say no one has the right to take away anyone's hope because you don't know what hope is to somebody. Sometimes hope is just like a grandparent wanting to be around for the five-year-old's birthday party, which is in a couple of months. And I see amazing things happening. You know, I've seen people who have been told, you know, they've got a year and it's they're still here 10 years on. I've seen people who have been told they won't see their children go to school and they're still here. So I always think it's not false hope, but it's like you're alive and you're living now and we don't know what the future holds. I mean, the oncologists can only tell you what they know based on what they see and treatments and they're trying to tell you, this is what we know. And sometimes that is pretty brutal. Um, And they have to be honest because they want to manage people's expectations about what they want to do with their lives as well. But I see the person and I believe that it's about us focusing on what can you do now, what's important now, and what are you living for? I tell you what, when people have something to live for and they have a goal and they have passion, they do amazing things. What about a loss of sense of self? Joe has talked earlier about, you know, she was really grateful to like keep her hair through treatment, but she's also, you know, a really vivacious, outgoing person. And she has talked about some days looking in the mirror and not really recognizing the person who looks back at her. And, you know, when you've got a personality, you know, a megawatt personality like Joe's, I'm sure that's a really 
painful kind of situation to face, is that something that's common with a lot of cancer patients? Very common. That personal identity, who mm. am I? Like Joe, before cancer, you know, was busy living a life and a journalist and, and had all these activities and suddenly it's taken over by cancer treatments that change, you know, everything about her body, the way it looks, the way it feels. And a lot of people say they don't recognise that person and that's what I'm saying about helping people get back to who they want to be after cancer treatments. It's not just about finishing treatment, it's about finding who they are again and how they can see themselves again as a person as opposed to a cancer cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And people lose their hair, but some people lose their breasts, some people, you know, lose their testicles. And even though others can't see it, that's their sexual identity, if you like. And there's little subtleties that people don't see, you know, their skin changes or the the drugs make them moody and they don't feel like they are the person that they know they are. Like it's it's out of control. Like Joe's probably had experiences where these drugs throw her up and then she'll get drugs that make her feel like she's wide awake and then there's drugs that make her feel like crap. So you've got no control from day to day. So a lot of what you had in control before is taken away from you. So that person is sort of, you grieve. Mm. There's a lot of grief in cancer and it's a natural response, but a lot of people don't actually know that it's a normal response. But Joe's grieving the person she was before and that doesn't go away because each day that goes on and the treatments and the changes, you know, it's, it's a real grieving process and people have got to remember that. She's still the amazing person. I love Joe. you know. She is still that person. <laughs> I see that person. Yeah, 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 I do too. And I didn't know Joe before, but she, this sounds really bad of me, but I love visiting Joe because she cheers me up. I mean, it, it, she lightens <laughs> my day. I go around and see Joe, and I think, I go away thinking, feeling really good. And it's not about me, but just the interactions with Joe. She's an amazing person, and she's got so much energy and life to give. And that's why I'm, I'll be her wingman the whole way suspect that we are cure people for that position. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Joe vs Cancer with Joe Mackenzie McLean and me Colleen O'Hanlon. We know our conversations might be a tough listen whether you've got cancer or you're caring for somebody who has. There's lots of support available and there's information in the show notes. This is a Stuff podcast produced by Chris Reid. You can listen to the full series at stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Kia kaha. Be strong.